Hello and welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we review and compare and contrast a piece of literature to its film or television adaptation. My name is Laura and I am the literature expert. My name is Danny and I'm the film expert. Nailed it. Nice intro. Thanks. And this is the final episode of season three. Yeah, I forgot. Oh my god. So enjoy this. We're going to take a long break after relatively long break we'll see but we've covered a lot of great adaptations some stinkers some (laughs) okay this was your suggestion laura yeah because i thought it was time to cover some steinbeck it's no secret that he's one of my favorite authors my dad introduced him to me and i was also really interested to watch the james dean adaptation which is the one that we'll be covering today it'll be an interesting episode i think (laughs) for sure i think we have some different takes on the yeah. material. I've only read Of Mice and Men in high school, and this was the second book of his that I read. I'm interested to dive into it. It is a, another tome of a book. That's why we yeah. saved it for the end of the season, because the end of last season was 112263. That's an even longer book. That was about 35 hours of audiobook. Mm-hmm. This was only... 27, if I recall. Only 27. Only 27. (laughs) It took me a while, but I did enjoy it. Yeah, originally I think we had this book earlier and I asked to push it back because it took me about a month to read it. I mean it's a thick boy and we should, sorry, we should address the wind if anyone hears any background noise we're having a windstorm. It adds to It's really nice. The mystique the creepy vibe. Yeah And I'm sure the Salinas Valley also gets wind (laughs) As any area of the world might (laughs) at some point. But yeah yeah, we're experiencing the Santa Ana winds right now. My allergies are going nuts. But it's a very California vibe. The Santa Anas are such a California thing that I think it is very appropriate during our discussion. John Steinbeck blew these in for us. So thank you, the ghost Sir John, John Steinbeck. Steinbeck is haunting us tonight. He's not an actual sir, but he did enjoy Arthurian legend. So he can be an honorary sir tonight. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead with our journeys with the source material. Laura, go for ahead. For sure. Yeah. I started reading John Steinbeck in middle school. I had heard of him from my dad because my dad, as we've discussed, is from Northern California. And so I think John Steinbeck's writing has always been discussed. And when I got to middle school, I remember reading The Red Pony and Of Mice and Men. And since then, I have read pretty much everything he's written, except for a few things here and there that weren't well received. I have all of his books, but for example, I haven't read his first novel, Cup of Gold, because it's not supposed to be very good. And I haven't read The Moon is Down, which I'm actually very interested in reading, but I just haven't gotten around to it. So there's a fun story where my dad and I were driving through California and we were lucky enough to get to go to the John Steinbeck Center when we were in Salinas. And we listened to an audiobook of Travels with Charlie. And so East of Eden, I'm a little bit late to. I only read 
read it for the first time a couple of years ago, but I was absolutely sucked in. And interestingly, this is also my maid of honor, Allison's favorite book. It is such an immersive experience. And I don't yeah. know if my analysis and my joy in Steinbeck's writing is really informed by the fact that I'm such a Californian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe I'm a little biased, but I just get swept up in his characters. I'm so immersed in his world when I read his writing. There's one book that I've read that I really didn't enjoy, To a God Unknown. But other than that, I mean, you read this novel and you read Grapes of Wrath and you just get something that you've never gotten from another author is sort of my feeling. So I love this book and I think that made me a little defensive going into the movie. I think that can happen with book nerds. (laughs) Wait, what? But (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I didn't notice. uh, Yeah, we turned on the movie and I was not... blown away. In fact, I kind of felt like I was watching a high school project of someone who filmed the book for like a video essay. It was like, I just, there was nothing special about it. I was confused by every single decision to not include things that were in the book or include things that weren't in the book. I was just completely disoriented. I was like, the book is so clear. In fact, sometimes a little annoyingly clear about its themes which is a critique that we'll go into later. But then with the movie, I just felt like there was no focus. So I was very disappointed. There were some glimmering moments in the movie for me, I guess, just a couple. But Mm -hmm. other than that, yeah, I really felt betrayed (laughs) by the movie. So I was not its biggest fan, but that kind of covers my ground. So what about you? Sure. So I enjoyed Of Mice and Men in high school. We read it as... A play. We kind of had parts. We all took parts and we certain scenes. In Mrs. Gothier's class, which who I've mentioned before, she yeah. was my honors lit teacher. We read this in her class and I uh, just realized that was a crossover with eleven twenty two. They perform of mice and men. Oh when, I totally forgot. When Jake Epping is in Jody. Jody. Yeah. He directs this. I totally forgot about that part, actually. Yeah, and it wasn't included in the show, which was such a great part in the book. Right, yeah. But with all high school books that are projects that we had to endure, I went into kind of a cynical, oh, I'm better than this attitude, and I didn't really appreciate the text as much as I should. I remember being really affected by spoilers for Of Mice and Men, but the scene, the murder scene, and really feeling for Lenny. I think the book is very progressive for the Mm -hmm. time. He doesn't outright say the condition Lenny has, but, Mm. you know, it's a a, a mental disorder. And we watched Gary Sinise's adaptation of of Mice and Men. And Gary Sinise also stars as the other guy who's not Lenny. George. And uh, John Malkovich is Lenny. Interesting. I've never seen that. It's an interesting performance. I don't know if Malkovich really nails it. It's been a while since I've seen it. But the ending scene when, again, spoilers when George kills Lenny I think is very well done and that still sticks out in my mind so I don't know why I haven't revisited Steinbeck years later well first of all I'm not a reader and I only started reading for this podcast but his kind of slice of life epics yeah isn't normally my genre you know sci-fi or thriller plots are, are my jam so plus I'm from Massachusetts not saying that I don't like California but yeah you know, I don't have that element 
Sure. And also, Gary Sinise must really enjoy Steinbeck because he read the Travels with Charlie audiobook that my dad and oh, I listened to, and it's really cool. good. I highly suggest picking up that audiobook because, number one, it's a fun story. It's actually one of John Steinbeck's autobiographical books that's not half nonfiction, half fiction. Right. So it's a really fun one. And Gary Sinise reads the audiobook, so Interesting. you should go yeah. check I, that out. I, definitely. But when you suggested East of Eden, I wasn't looking forward to it begrudgingly taking upon this task to read the book. This Trask? (laughs) Nice one. (laughs) But then I did some Google searching on the movie and saw that it starred James Dean. And Mm -hmm. this is kind of a hole in my cinephile knowledge. I've never seen a James Dean movie. I haven't seen Giant. I haven't seen Rebel Without a Cause. Oh my gosh. And and this is actually the first James Dean movie that I've seen. I didn't know that. He was only in three major motion pictures, if you don't know, listeners. Mm -hmm. And he starred in some TV shows here and there, but this was his big break, East of Eden. And, and then speaking of California, he died in a car accident right. on, well, off the five. It wasn't on the five, but it was between LA and San Francisco. Yeah, we've driven past the site mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a, a memorial. couple times before. Yeah. And I've always been interested in watching a James Dean movie, and I've been interested in the actor, his legacy, making such a huge impact, despite only starring in three films within the span of two years. I mean, yeah. th- th- that's incredible that yeah. he was able to make such a name for himself with three films. So I became really excited to tackle this story, and the book took me a while to listen to, but I've been thinking of a great analogy, a great metaphor for for my experience reading East of Eden. And to me, and some listeners are going to be like, Danny's going a little cuckoo here. (laughs) This is my metaphor. So stick with me, okay? Okay. Laura and listeners, stick with me. I'm buckled in. Reading East of Eden is like mowing your big lawn. Okay. On like a summer afternoon. So it takes longer than it should. It's a little exhausting sometimes a bit of a hassle, but at the same time, it is immensely satisfying. I don't know if this is just me, but it feels like art to me. You're taking tall grass, making it short. (laughs) I'm being really elegant right now. But it is an art form, and it is oddly satisfying and soothing. And at the end, despite it being kind of a task, you do feel a sense of accomplishment by finishing it. And you look back at your lawn and see, wow, I did that and reading about three generations of a family and it yeah. feels a sense of pride in yourself of just coming to know these people and sticking around with it. So mm-hmm. I hope I'm not being disrespectful to Steinbeck fans. I think it's a good thing no. yeah. that it's like mowing the lawn. I don't know if you've... I think that you're not being disrespectful because I think a lot of people do not want to finish this book. Yeah. It was not critically well received. Oh, didn't know that. Steinbeck has a style. Yeah. And this was one of his later books that he kind of referred to as his big project or his big accomplishment. And it's something that he wanted to use to inform the public. And that I think is why it was critically not well received because I think a lot of critics said that it hits you over the head Uh with the theme and the message. I understand that. And they thought it was also really choppy, which I also understand because he inserts all of these- Real life nonfiction bits. Right, Right, but also the chapters about the environment. Oh, right. Which really chops up the book. Yeah. But again, the reason that he was so heavy handed with the writing is because he wanted to read 
reach people who weren't necessarily as educated as the critics. And I think his message ended up coming across really well because the public did enjoy this book. Yeah. I think it's a good thing that you recognize what he was trying to do. And the point is that you get into this three generation long story and you appreciated it. So I think you got what he wanted you to get out of the book. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And our experience was even enhanced by the fact that over break, since we couldn't go home for the holidays, or well, you were, you live here, but I couldn't, we were planning to go to Massachusetts and because of the pandemic, we didn't leave. So we traveled up to San Carlos first and then down through the Salinas Valley and stayed in Monterey for a night and hiked around there. So right before we tackled this project, as I was reading East of Eden, that takes place in Salinas and Monterey, we were traveling Monterey and Salinas. Yeah. And what a coincidence, but also what an experience. Yeah, it's such a joy. Yeah, Monterey, uh, this is for all, all people. It's a beautiful town. I would recommend anyone go there. There's tons of great hiking. You can go to the uh, the beach, hike on the kind of the mountainous cliffs around, which we did. I forget the name of the, the trail that we did, but pretty breathtaking region of California. So that only heightened the experience. Experience. Then we watched the movie last night. I agree with you in that a lot of the performances are stilted and bizarre. I think a real drag about films, especially from the 50s and 60s, is that a lot of the dialogue was 80 yard. Yeah, over. definitely distracting. Th- that's kind of what always bums me out about revisiting some of the earlier Bond films. I mean, mm-hmm. Bond is yeah. great. It's our favorite film franchise, but a lot of the dialogue for especially the foreign characters are are dubbed over and it's just it's so noticeable for films in the 50s and 60s they just didn't sync it well another movie we watched that really bugged me with adr was to catch a thief it's pretty bad there (laughs) so bad Um, so there's really no excuse for some bizarre performances some weird editing yeah however we differ in the fact that i really was taken by a lot of the technical elements i think this was one of the first films to use a cinema scope which is the anamorphic lenses that okay. kind of the wide lens hmm. lenses and it was used in a lot of westerns in this period after you know 1956 when they started using these lenses but hmm. i think the cinematography is pretty breathtaking in some shots i think elia kazan's direction at least in how he stages the sequences are pretty cool like he puts stuff in the foreground and the background there's a lot to analyze there mm. um, he uses dutch angles to his advantage dutch is when the camera is skewed like Mm -hmm. almost 45 degrees and a lot of times in movies that can look tacky that can seem like a really forced way to convey emotion but I think it's used very well here and this might just be the fact that's my first time seeing James Dean but I was really taken by his performance I mean it is wild in my research I found out when this movie was released his performance was actually panned by critics yeah I've read yeah they they slammed him for overacting and I think uh, it's such a raw performance and you you especially don't see these type of performances 
performances, vulnerable performances from male actors mm-hmm. in this era. It's just, it feels so different to me. And and I, I liked the story. I mean, I think they add a kind of a melodramatic soap opera love triangle Mm. to the story which the book didn't have in the book abra comes to love cal once aaron has died but in the movie one of the main driving one of the main sources of conflict is this love triangle and i think abra's performance that actress it wasn't great yeah i don't know maybe i was just i like that soap opera aspect of it it just it added more drama for me and Mm. it really drove home the points and i i like the movie i don't think it's perfect it's not as tight like Alfred Hitchcock speaking of To Mm. Catch a Thief he's made some films even like his films from the 1940s those hold up Mm -hmm. to this day like those and we rewatched Citizen Kane which came out in the 40s that could be released today yeah this movie is unfortunately a product of its times where Mm -hmm. it's some technical elements that just just don't hold up well we were laughing at certain points certain line line deliveries or certain cuts I think that a lot of the acting is a huge problem in this movie which is doesn't make it like a classic for me I still really enjoyed it The, the cinematography was a big part of it I mean I think some shots are really cool like James Dean on the top of the train mm-hmm. as it's going like that's really him doing that and you tried to look to see if you could find any facts that he did all of his own stunts I couldn't find any confirmation of that but right. it, it certainly looks like that the, the the camera doesn't cut when he's doing these stunts yeah so I did look this up because I knew a little bit about his life and I knew that he was a person that tended to engage in risky behavior yeah and I I found out that he was a stunt double for a lot of things before he became a movie star. So I'm going to assume that he had been trained and he was also a trained ballet dancer. And I think if you look at his face throughout those shots, yeah. those shots aren't cut. And I think you can tell that it's him. And I couldn't find any confirmation, but I feel pretty confident that it was him. For example, he climbs all over a Ferris wheel yeah. and jumps out of one of the little seats and climbs down to the ground and as far as I could tell I think that's him so yeah you're right I mean I'm not gonna pan I I have feelings about his performance but yeah continue with your well I'll end by saying that a lot of times his acting is so over the top that you watch it and go he is acting that that's not a real thing but then mm-hmm. at the same time it's like oh no this is you don't normally see this in films this kind of crazy erratic lashing behavior mm-hmm. that's actually as real as anything that happens in in any day life like that's mm-hmm. actually how someone might react he also has been compared to a young marlon brando i completely agree what james dean does that also marlon brando used to do in his acting was fidget and mm-hmm. like play around with stuff clearly improvised if Elliot Kazan told him to do that type of stuff I mean that's some pretty amazing direction it seems just like off the top of his head he would like fiddle with a a cigarette you know Mm -hmm. you know smoke it or one time when he's talking to Will Hamilton uh, in the movie he has his head up against some lockers and he's just mushing his nose up and like back and forth before he starts talking I'm like it's so weird and bizarre and I think he James Dean just did that because he was just he's a known method actor he was a Mm-hmm. totally in the mindset of Cal Trask the entire shoot so much so that the actor who played his dad Raymond Massey ended up hating him by the end of production because he was just always in the character of Cal
Cal. Well, speaking of Adam, I also read that in the scene where Cal tries to give his dad the money that he made for him. So Adam has lost a bunch of money on this gamble to ship lettuce across the country. And Cal decides that he's going to make that money back by investing in beans in a bean harvest. And he makes all that money back. He tries to gift it to his dad. And Adam is like, I don't care about money. It wasn't about money for me. And it's a heartbreaking scene in the book. And But I thought it was one of the most compelling scenes in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And I read that instead of what happens in the movie, Cal slash James Dean was supposed to spit on his dad and then run out of the room. But what he does instead on instinct is he actually hugs his dad. And Raymond Massey was really caught off guard. And all he could say was, Cal, Cal. And that was completely improvised. And I actually think it furthers Cal's character. Like all he wants is love and acceptance from his father and he never gets it. What you were saying about James Dean being compared to Marlon Brando, I read that he was dubbed the cheap Marlon Brando and Marlon Brando was like kind of pissed that he was trying to take on his acting method and his persona in real life. And I think that's so sad. Like I think that, so John Steinbeck actually met James Dean when he was cast for Cal and John Steinbeck was like, he is is Cal. Cal. That was his quote. Yeah. Yeah. The quote is Jesus Christ is Cal. (laughs) Yeah, it's very John Steinbeck. So I completely agree. I think his casting was a stroke of brilliance. I also think that James Dean shot this the year that he died. He was 24 playing a 16 year old character. But in a lot of the research I was doing into James Dean for this episode, I think that he also really struggled with a lot of the things that Cal struggled with. Mm. And like you were saying, I think that that nervous energy that he brought to the character didn't distract from his portrayal. Something we were laughing at is when he is in the ice storage area. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> that's an awkward that's scene. That's yeah. a very uncomfortable scene. He's like spying on Aaron and Abra. Abra and he's just like, his like face is pressed against these two blocks of ice and it's actually like kind of creepy. I got chills because I was like, what the hell? It's uncomfortable in the wrong way. Yeah. Like in the unintentional way. Very, yeah. And it's just a, also an unnecessary scene. I don't know why. <laughs> like his whole spying on them was necessary. But anyway, I almost felt very sad watching James Dean because I almost felt like his real insecurity in life was coming through Cal. Yeah, and he got a posthumous Oscar nomination for this film. He Mm. didn't win. The next year, he would win his posthumous Oscar for Giant. Gotcha. I've never seen that. I've seen Rebel Without a Cause, though, and I do have a special place in my heart just because it was shot all over LA, you know, with Griffith Observatory being the climactic scene, which is why it's in La La Land and that kind of thing. I think James Dean has become this very, I mean, this is nothing new, but he's a Hollywood legend. And I think he's almost as much as Steinbeck, he's baked into the California legend, Mm -hmm. which I think is very interesting because John Steinbeck loved legends and epics and this is certainly an epic this is (laughs) an epic if we've ever read one but let's get into some of the differences between the books so laura go ahead what's one of the most glaring differences or difference you want to talk about sure well i think the first difference that we have to address that probably most people know even if you haven't seen the movie is that the movie is only based on the last 
quarter. Quarter. Yeah. Which is not a lot of the book. There's so much of the book that goes to make these rich, and when I say rich, I mean double dark chocolate. Mousse. Espresso mousse with whipped cream and sprinkles characters. Oh, shit. You brought sprinkles into it? I did. Lore means business. (laughs) And that's something that Steinbeck does so well. His development of characters is un- paralleled. And he does that well in really novellas like Of Mice and Men and Mm -hmm. The Pearl and The Red Pony. I mean, a lot of his earlier works, Tortilla Flat, Cannery Row, those were so short, but his character development is incredible. And so to give himself the time and space to write 500 pages worth of character development is truly masterful. And small text too, people. (laughs) Small text. (laughs) Again, 27 hours audiobook. So something that I missed in the movie is just that not only do you understand the motivations of characters in certain situations, you see those motivations change as they grow and become more fully formed humans. Again, it's truly masterful to watch him do this. So to only be given about two hours, is that about how long the movie is? Yep, hour 58, yep. Sure. To develop characters as rich as Adam Trask or Cal or Aaron or Abra. They had to simplify their characters to such a degree that I felt like, for example, take Adam Trask, who's one of the most changed characters in the whole story. I would argue that he is as close to a main character in the Mm -hmm. novel as you can get. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Even though he's not in it the whole time, he pretty much is. So... Adam in the book is such a rich character to me because he's the one who's constantly learning from Samuel and Samuel kind of brings this interesting self-realization journey to Adam. Mm -hmm. And of course, Adam is named Adam because there are insane biblical overtones to this novel. Obviously, it's called East of Eden. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Cal and Aaron, Cain and Abel people. (laughs) Well, and Charles and Adam. Right. Who are the uncle and the father. And in fact, there's a quote by Adam and he literally says, I want to make a garden of my land. Remember, my name is Adam. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then <laughs> uh, I think you had mentioned that the novel hits on some themes on the head. And I think one of the few times where I noticed that was when Samuel Hamilton recalls the story of Cain and Abel to Lee. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's not really necessary. I, I understand the whole point of this. Yeah. <laughs> novel is the is a retelling a loose retelling of Cain and Abel which is fun because we're covering a movie which is a loose adaptation of a book which is a loose adaptation of the bible yeah <laughs> so that's kind of cool totally yeah kind of like Ad Astra yeah we did exactly so to me what's so compelling about Sam Hamilton and Adam Trask in the book and Lee who by the way is completely left out of the movie which is a total mistake in my opinion mm-hmm. yeah I agree their whole most motive is to become better people. And that's not a simple motive. It sounds really simple, but they are not only looking to the Bible, they're looking to Jewish traditions, Chinese traditions, Buddhist traditions, uh, Native American traditions, which again goes back to how interesting Steinbeck's life is. Remarkably progressive. Even though, and I do have to put this disclaimer in it, he does describe indigenous peoples as lazy and he does use the N-word in this book. So I can't defend that I don't know why he says that Mm -hmm. because in a lot of his personal writings he defended the marginalized 
So I truly don't understand his decisions in that yeah. <laughs> way. But again, what I find so interesting is that I can apply that to my life because I don't necessarily subscribe to any religion, but I always strive to be a better person. And if someone can give me as a mentor some piece of knowledge that will make me a better person, then I would want to take that into my life and integrate it into my actions. And so to go from that to the movie where Adam Trask forces Cal to read the Bible because he's acting poorly instead of lending a fatherly ear right and listening and loving Adam and Cal in different ways because they're two different people it just really disappointed me to watch him basically emotionally abuse Cal to make him act in a better way in what way is that gonna work yeah Adam in the movie is pretty one-dimensional, and I think he resembles more Cyrus in the book, which was Adam's father. Good observation. I totally agree. Yeah, of just the one-dimensional religious zealot, if you could say, but also someone who, despite preaching religion and values, is also flawed at the same time and sinful. So in focusing purely on Cal and to an extent Aaron, but even Aaron doesn't get a lot of development. It's pretty one dimensional, yeah. By just simply focusing on Cal, I think you get some really rich development of Cal, but it's one of those situations where because we read the book and like the book so much, it's disappointing to see rich characters mm. totally stripped of their dimension. Yeah. And on top of that, I just don't think Raymond Massey's performance is that good. Yeah. He, he's an example of someone who it is stilted and just yeah. miscalculated and you don't really know what he's thinking or yeah. saying at, at any point. Right. That was a big bummer. But another big bummer to go on that was the reduction of Kate's character, who now... Yes, let's dive into this. (laughs) Now, I think Joe Van Fleet's performance of Kate is excellent and she won the uh, best supporting actress oscar for i totally this agree i'm so happy to hear that she won that oscar because i think of anything i was going to highlight her performance yeah she actually doesn't have a lot of screen time i think she's about 19 minutes of mm-hmm. screen time not a lot but she it's does, not perfect yeah oh yeah but but it's certainly noticeable going into the book so like i said adam is probably the main character ha- or has most page time yeah <laughs> but the second most character to have the most uh, page time is kate or kate slash kathy Ames. yeah the devil incarnate yes the serpent in human skin yeah i mean that's it's pretty obvious what steinbeck is saying that she is the devil the female who escaped the garden of eden ate the apple and is now has become the snake and even at one point her tongue is described as lashing around her teeth like yeah. she's a serpent and she has like fangs instead of and her eyes are dead yeah and, so, oh yeah. she's so oh, she's such a good character in the book now for most books or movies that we go into i have kind of a vague understanding of what they are mm-hmm. or, or what the story is but this is the first time on this podcast where i have gone into a book completely blind not knowing anything other than it takes place in the salinas valley mm-hmm. so i was under the impression that this book was about three generations of farmers mm. and it is about that but it's only 50 percent about that the other 50 percent it's about this literal demon on earth, this duplicitous woman 
this badass and evil woman. And it's like, I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I just, reading the book, when the, when Steinbeck was going more and more into Kate and of her thought process, I'm like, wait, I, I, know, I didn't know Kate was... A, and then she slowly emerges to be this evil character. And the whole time, I was waiting for that corny passage of her redemption arc. Mm. And the beauty of this novel and kind of the progressiveness of it, I think, is that she doesn't I get 100% agree. Now, now, I want to be careful with the language I'm using. I think such a cliche for the flawed female character in writing in both books and movies is to give that female a redemption arc. And you can see that in a way it's sexist that men can be evil, but females always have to be good at the end. Yeah. And it's progressive of Steinbeck to just show a woman who is just evil through and through. Yeah. And that's what makes it so thrilling is the whole time you're waiting for the shoe to drop. You're waiting for her to turn and to show some sympathy and empathy for mm-hmm. Adam, who she left after giving birth to twins and then shooting and him, then shooting him. <laughs> in the shoulder. Yeah. With a shotgun. Yeah. Like, she fucks him up. And you're waiting for that sympathy and empathy for um, her husband and her babies, her children, and it never comes. Yeah. And instead, she just goes deeper down the hole of depravity and becomes a true devil walking on earth. Couldn't be closer to the devil of Steinbeck. Steinbeck basically should have started writing Satan (laughs) instead of Kathy. And it just felt like such a breath of fresh air. Yeah. It's insane to me that there aren't just truly evil women characters in books and TV and, and movies. There aren't a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You just don't see it. And I don't. I feel like since I'm a man, I can't really stand on the soapbox much longer. But I don't know. It just, it just felt supremely fresh to me. I am so happy that we're having this conversation because, yeah. listen, if I can be so humble, I consider myself a feminist. What? <laughs> what if you and- were like, I'm not a feminist, fuck female. <laughs> fuck female I'd be, empowerment. I'd be like, wait, what? <laughs> no, no. So I hope to keep this diatribe as short as possible. Here, I'll time you. You've <laughs> okay. got a minute. No, I can't do it in a minute. But Two anyway. Minutes. All, right. All right, so and here we go. go. While I was reading East of Eden, I was working for a company that I struggled. <laughs> it was a bad, not the right fit for me. Someone noticed that I had been reading East of Eden and... Let me just interject. When you were reading it and you're at a different company, not the company yes, you're working at right yes. now. Yes, I'm at a much better yes. situation where I, I enjoy my job now. Yes, okay. good point. And time back, you have a minute 45 left. <laughs> okay. Go. So I was reading East of Eden for the first time and they started attacking Steinbeck and I was like, you know what? If you want me not to like you, attack Steinbeck. I'm like, do not at me at this point. <laughs> she started talking about how can you enjoy Steinbeck when he's such a sexist writer? And I'm like, sorry, uh, can you explain to me how many Steinbeck books you've read? And she said, of Mice and Men, and maybe one other one. And I was like, have you read East of Eden? She said, no. When I read East of Eden the first time, I also had no idea that Kate was going to be in this book. And she came out as my favorite fucking character. Yeah. She is the most interesting character in the book, except for maybe Lee, who I also love. I think he's such a great addition to the 
Trask household. Kate <laughs> is an absolute sociopath. She is Sherlock Holmes as a female and the bad side of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, she like frames and murders people for her. For her own gain. gain. Like yeah. one of the first things that she does when we meet Kate is that she murders her parents in a house fire and walks away. But I think a great aspect to that part of the book is that Steinbeck doesn't out and right say that she did it. She says that there's a fire yeah. and implies that maybe she did it. And then over the course of the book, that her past comes back to to bite her in the butt and to put up these roadblocks. And then you put it together that she burned her yeah. parents alive. And then later on, it's confirmed that she did it. Right. Yeah. And let me be clear. I understand that she's evil. But like you were saying, she is such a complex evil. Yeah. It's like, like uh, Daniel Plainview from There yeah, Will Be Blood. She is out for herself. And you know what? That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, yeah, she doesn't go about getting her way in a nice way. But that's incredibly interesting. I feel like it would have been sexist for her to cave because she saw her babies and be like, I can't of leave course. my babies. Yeah. yeah. No, she walks right out and as soon as Adam tries to say wait a second no like you have to stay you have to be with your family she fucking shoots him she's like no yeah she's like you tie me down like you try to do anything to get in my way and she will murder you she murders like 15 people in the book and I just get really territorial when people start to accuse Steinbeck of poorly developed female characters because okay listen I've literally read four biographies about Steinbeck I've read his letters. In fact, there's actually a companion to East of Eden, which is a collection of letters that he was writing to a friend during his authoring of East of Eden. I've also read <laughs> a biography about his relationship with his first wife. And one of the major things that I walked away from all of those things with was an understanding that he was very androgynous when it came to his relationships with females. And while I don't think that he was perfect, I'm not going to defend everything that he said or wrote or did in his life, he was so interested in the art of the relationship and the theory of the phalanx, which is very specific to his writing, which is basically the idea that the group is stronger than the individual. And I think that comes through in this book too. Like he admonishes only looking out for yourself. Uh -huh. But those ideas to me and the way that he interacted with his first wife, Carol, who was incredibly hands-on, especially when it came to everything basically prior to Grapes of Wrath, and the Grapes of Wrath is kind of their jointly written or written and edited piece that I just, I don't think that there's evidence to say and accuse him of underdeveloping his female characters. Yeah. Kate is more developed, I think, than Aaron or Cal. She's in more of the book. Yeah. And she has chapters on chapters of writing. And I think one of the greatest things too that he develops in her is this idea that she sits and waits yeah. for her opportunity to strike. She's such an intelligent character. Yeah, no matter what comes her way, she has a plan yeah. that usually involves killing someone. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, she gets away. And at, at the very end, she's the one who decides to die. Like she, the arthritis doesn't even take her. Old age doesn't even take her. She's mm -hmm. like, all right, I'm out. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, 
I'm, I'll right. try not to talk too much about this, but it was disappointing to see her be reduced in the movie. And just the one scene that she has with Cal when she gives him the check is completely different than what happens in the movie. He goes to Lee, which I've already said he's left out of the movie, which is disappointing. He's basically their caretaker, Cal and Aaron. Uh, so he gets the money from him. But in the movie, Cal goes to his mother because he knows that she has money yeah. and she gives him the check. And I thought that was okay. Like that, that didn't well, bother that me. scene was my favorite favorite scene in the movie. I think it's so tense, so well shot. Yeah. And you can tell that Kate is wrestling with the reasoning behind her eventual decision to give her the money because she doesn't care for him as a son, but she has this inherent interest with him because she sees herself in him. Yeah. And it's not like she sees herself in him like because she's her mother. It's It could have been just two separate human beings coming together. Totally. Right? And she knows that she's looking at herself and she finally relents not to prove anything to herself or to Adam, but a- to actually kind of get back to Adam in a way because I think she knows that Adam doesn't approve of what Cal wants to do with the money. Yeah. So she's like... Here's another way how I could get back at Adam. Yeah. But yeah, that's the thing. The movie starts in the last fourth of the novel when Kate is already riddled with arthritis and is kind of, she isn't old yet, but her diseases and her past activity and alcoholism and and drug use and, you know, just living a life of depravity has led to her body to break down. Mm -hmm. So when the movie starts, she's already on the way out, Mm -hmm. in a sense, or severely uh, crippled by her many ailments. Mm -hmm. So that's another example of because we've read the book and we've seen her journey from being a murderous adolescent to someone who shoots her husband after she just gave birth Mm -hmm. and leaves her kids to someone who starts a brothel and then murders the madam of the house which which that scene in the book scariest scene I've ever read and it's super scary reading it or listening to the audiobook because what happens if you haven't read the book is Faye the original madam of the brothel takes Kate in as a daughter Mm -hmm. like adopts her and they get drunk Kate at that point before they start drinking says like oh don't get me drinking like you won't like me when I'm drunk and and Faye's like oh come on whatever and then they get too drunk and then Kate goes off on Faye calling her like a fat little pig like like some like awful language and then Faye's like you're scaring me stop stop and then like Kate's like oh just shut your pretty little whore mouth then uses chloroform on Faye and the next day is like Faye's like what happened it's like oh you just fell asleep and and you had some bad dreams and I sat up with you because I was so concerned. Yeah. And and then later on, she manipulates Faye's medication and puts stuff in her drink to kill Faye. And her beans, her, yeah. her dinner and her soup. She poisons uh, her and over Faye dies. Slowly, over slowly. time. Right. So to see that whole journey. After Faye has written a will that leaves the brothel to Kathy. Yeah. Which again, is like Kathy's the linchpin. So She's smart. so smart. Kathy slash Kate. Yeah. yeah. So just by the fact that we know that story exists to see the final part of that journey again well acted well realized it's just one fourth of it and we're biased we're admitting our bias right now Mm. that we know kate's whole story and to only see a quarter of it is disappointing 
But if you're just watching this movie, going into it, not knowing the source material, I think it's pretty compelling. Yeah, I also like that she recognizes that Cal is a good businessman, and I think that she knows that not only is she getting back at Adam by making this loan, she's also going to probably make money. She's True. not stupid. Yeah, so that's a change that I both like, but don't like at the at the same time about about the movie what are what's another change or what's the biggest the glaring change that you wanted to talk about because we're almost ready to wrap up here or how about this i know you wanted to talk about abra so yeah well another female character that i think is really compelling in the novel (laughs) yeah go ahead Abra is so interesting because even though she starts out as this milk toast, naive, good girl, she starts dating Aaron and you sort of, in your head, you're already mapping out their trajectory of being a very straightforward, straight-laced, straight couple who's going to get married and have kids and live on the farm and all this. Interestingly, there is a late stage twist to her character that completely changes who she comes across as. Yeah. She's having a conversation with Lee and she says, you know, Lee, I don't love Aaron anymore. She's recognized that Aaron has completely written her story and he has made all of these assumptions that she's this good girl that wants to have his babies and be a mother and make his life perfect. And she says, I don't want that. You know, I'm not that person anymore. I might've been that person when I was 12, but I'm becoming a woman and I don't want that anymore. But he's forcing me to make that decision and I'm not comfortable with that. That's an incredibly perceptive thing for John Steinbeck to write. Yeah. To understand that there were so many, there have been so many women, there probably currently are so many women, there will be so many women who feel very trapped and defined by their male partner or by their partner in general. And that is so limiting. And that is exactly what Kate was lashing out especially in the movie. I don't think she's as much of a sociopath as she is in the book. Right. But in the movie, not nearly. But in the movie, they frame it as Adam was trying to keep her by his side. And she kept telling him, I don't want to do that. And that's why she left. I think that, again, it's so perceptive for Abra to come to that realization and to sort of realize, you know, I actually like Cal because he sees me for who I am. And I don't think that he's going to try to define me as that homemaker. And I don't want that for myself. And I think Cal understands that and we're a better match. And it just so happens that in the book, Aaron has decided to enlist in the army in World War One, and he ends up dying. And so it sort of is conveniently prearranged <laughs> that it's okay for them to get together. Yeah. I didn't really understand the love triangle in the movie. I don't understand why they included those few kisses between Cal and Abra before Adam goes to the war because that was sort of the catalyst for him to go crazy and enlist and then hop onto the train and leave and then his father sees him and then he has a stroke. That's kind of the catalyst for the whole ending. Yeah. But it just, to me, it was frustrating because it cast another poor judgment light on Cal. Like he knew he shouldn't have been kissing Abra, but he does it multiple times. And it just, to me, I was like, Cal's not that dumb. I don't think he would cross that line. Well, it's kind of like that juicy forbidden love type of that. I, I, yeah. I know it's a little melodramatic, but I don't know. I, I was entertained by it. it. You know, it's kind of like I viewed it as Abra is with... Aaron, or at Aaron, as uh, <laughs> Raymond, Raymond Massey calls him, Aaron throughout the movie. Inconsistently, yeah, yeah. He like sometimes he says 
Air. He sometimes he says Air Ron. Yeah, and it's like so, that Key and Peel sketch. Yeah, A Ron. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, I viewed it as Abra is with Aaron, but Abra and Cal are these eternal lovers, like meant to be together. Mm. There's this connection between. She sees the hurt soul within Cal, and Cal sees her as a sanctuary of sorts, Mm -hmm. a comforting blanket of a a human. And how Abra is trapped in the relationship with Aaron, and she keeps on trying to say out loud, like, when are you going to marry? Like, we're meant to be together. But she's saying those things to try to convince herself that that's the right thing to do, when in reality, they both know that Cal and Abra both know that they belong Mm. together. And and again, it's very soap opera, very like sitcom love triangle type of stuff. But there is a cool element of this forbidden love that's happening. And I don't think in the book, Aaron's reason to enlist because he sees his mom, he sees that his mom runs a brothel. I'm not saying that that's a bad reason, Mm. but it kind of seemed like a big leap to me for Aaron to do that, to just go off because he, he knows his mom is alive and is it runs a brothel. In the movie, however, the fact that he both sees his mom is alive and he also sees that his relationship is crumbling and that Abba really loves Cal and mm. not him. I think that's a big enough reason that justifies him going nutso and, and listing out of the blue mm. to me. Yeah. So that's, that's the big reason why I actually liked that melodramatic addition to the movie. I guess it's a bummer that the woman who played Abra is not a good enough actor to be nuanced. Yeah. (laughs) Because I understand what you're saying, and I think that makes sense. And I think that there are hints in the book as well that Abra is not getting along with Aaron. I just wish that Julie Harris had a little bit more nuance because she does, especially at the beginning, her character is so doe-eyed and simpering that it's like she clearly is with her acting what she's saying is that she clearly is that woman who wants to stay on the farm and become a homemaker yeah and while there's nothing wrong with that steinbeck is saying her character means and deserves more and for julie harris to go from i want everything that aaron wants to i want to kiss cal and completely turn my back on aaron just there wasn't nuance to that for me. So maybe that's why I didn't get as much. And for me too, I think all the nuance comes from James Dean, who is trying his hardest not to kiss Abra, but at the same time, he knows that he just can't resist. And Mm. it's not necessarily betrayal. It's more of just like a magnetic attraction. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying that they're opposites. Uh, Maybe magnetic's not the right word, but this kind of forbidden eternal love type of connection. Sure. That they, they're they just destined to be together. And the fact that it, it's one of Adam's supposed final words to Cal is saying that, like, I'm happy that mm. you're with Abra. Now please get a new nurse. We can talk, yeah. <laughs> talk about that nurse. She, yeah. What a... What, what a fucking bitch. Yeah, she's... I hate to say that. She's not like, a good, not good at her job. She just like directly says to Cal, like, "Why do I always get the dying ones?" <laughs> yeah, I'm, like, gonna, I'm gonna be out of a job in a week. And you're like, damn. <laughs> yeah, like, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> closing closing thoughts before we get to our rating. Closing thoughts. 
I wish people would discontinue the shallow reading of Steinbeck's female characters. I really think that what Steinbeck is saying is that there should be more androgyny when it comes to defining gender roles. They should not be as hard-lined. And I think it's very frustrating to me to hear people say, for example, Kate is not a well-developed character because all she's doing is looking out for herself. Yeah. You know, I, I don't I don't find that convincing and I find it really angering when I tell people that I like Steinbeck that they come back and not only do they say that they haven't read East of Eden or all of his books, <laughs> I will continue defending my opinion. <laughs> what I'm yeah. uh, I love this book. I want to point out one of my favorite anecdotes. It's not because it's a fun anecdote, but it's because it's a heartbreaking anecdote in the book. And there's a character, Mr. Finchel, who lives in Selena who is tormented by the town because everyone assumes that he is supportive of the German aggression in Europe and they all burn his house and Steinbeck actually appears as a character in his own book as a child and he says that he and his sister taunt Mr. Finchel. I wish that that had been more nuanced in the movie as well. I don't think that that storyline translates in the movie. I think it's like really aggressive and the character of Mr. Finchel who's changed to Mr. Albright doesn't make sense. Like he's defending the Germans, Uh which obviously makes the town angry. And I'm like kind of on the side of the town. Like I don't understand why that was changed. So, and here's the thing. I... I would give this movie a one star. I just, there's nothing in here except James Dean's performance that I care about. I see. <sighs> like, I know that sounds really harsh, but yeah. I just could not engage in any scene. And maybe Kate's performance too. There, were, there just wasn't enough of her, maybe. The book, I think this is one of the greats. I think that there are some things that could be cut out, so I'm going to give it a, a three and a half because there's so much to love. I don't think it's a perfect book. I think it could have been edited down. There Mm -hmm. are some things I just don't... The book would be just as good as if it had been edited a little bit more. But I will read it again. Absolutely. Hands down. (laughs) I will read it again. And I don't know if I would want this to be made. I I gave this a little thought. And I don't know if I would want this book to be made into a movie. Even though Steinbeck voiced his praise of this movie after it came out. He liked it. And he liked a lot of the film and play adaptations of his work. I personally don't know if his work has ever translated well to the movies or the screen. Have you seen the Gary Sinise adaptation? No, I guess... Maybe. But I guess where I'm coming from is that even if you adapted this book into a miniseries, there's still not enough time. It was adapted in the uh, 80s. Oh, really? The one, yeah, a three-part one, yeah. But even, like, three-part, like, it just, it feels like there's just not enough. There's so much character development. Yeah, there's a lot. You're literally (sighs) watching three generations of people grow up. There's just so much character development that I don't know, even through dialogue, I don't know how you could make it that rich. Yeah. So... I just, I can't see, I have yet to see a successful adaptation of his work. And if someone can figure out how to do it, I think the closest I've seen maybe is There Will Be Blood, just because of that Mm. richness of California lore that went along with, I remember talking about that scene where Daniel Day-Lewis is sitting on that patio in the bright sun. And I was like, that is California. Like that is my roots. (laughs) Yeah. 
so I don't know, Paul Thomas Anderson, go ahead and try to <laughs> take one of these pieces. Oh, he'd a killer I bet adaptation. he would. Oh Ad- actually, God. okay, if anything, he could do that. Yeah. But other than that, I just don't see any of Steinbeck's work translating well to the screen. At, at least, especially with like Grapes of Wrath and East of Eden. There's just too much. much. Yeah. And it's, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff, but too much of it uh, reading it was a little bit of a chore for me, but like Mm -hmm. mowing the lawn, it's a satisfying experience. So I would give the book three out of four stars. Yeah, it's pretty Um, solid. It's solid. I liked it. It was a long read, but I liked it a lot. The movie, uh, you know, it's tough to rate it because I did like it, but I do realize some severe miscalculations with the performances and a lot of that has to be due to the direction. Um, Elliot Kazan's a great director, but for some reason, a lot of the stuff was off in this performances. So great performances from an ensemble cast. That's good directing. Poor performances. <laughs> that's bad directing. So it's it's a beautiful movie, and, and I like the story and the themes, and I kind of liked it being so blatantly about Cain and Abel. That just interests me for some reason i'm gonna have to go i'm gonna have to go three out of four for the movie too this is probably this is probably the biggest disparity between ratings that we've had yeah i'm really surprised like i i was assuming that maybe you could bring me around to liking the movie a little bit more not that you failed in that task but i just i I don't know know, but the thing is everything you said is valid you know i I can't say no you're wrong because there are a lot of things that are wrong with a film and it doesn't hold up like a hitchcock film it doesn't hold up like an Orson Welles film or a David Lean film it it very much is a film from 1955 so regardless I would still say three out of four uh it ain't perfect but I certainly was taken and part of that comes from us just going through Monterey and it was just cool to see Monterey in a film again yeah even though a lot of it was filmed at Warner Brothers and and studio uh back lots it still was fun to watch that so yeah Wow, I'm I'm just imagining Paul Thomas Anderson going out to Monterey and the Salinas oh. Valley. Oh my and, god. Uh, Kathy is a PTA yes. character. He, she is, yeah. You know what? Spill. Spill it. <laughs> could Carrie Mulligan play Kathy? Carrie Mulligan <gasps> could play anything. Have you seen Promising Wait. Young Woman? <laughs> hey, Wait. L- listeners. PTA. No. PTA at I'm tweeting at PTA cast Carrie Mulligan as Kathy. Oh, she would kill and it. obviously Daniel Day Lewis as Sam, and then Timothy Chalamet as well, Cal. Obviously, because he's in every movie and now. Johnny Flynn could be Aaron. Oh, I love him. And how about on Instagram? We'll post our <laughs> our dream, dream cast. cast. Oh my God, I'm getting shot by Roger so, Deakins. Shot by Roger Deakins, of course. I'm Although getting technically so... PTA is his own cinematographer now, so <laughs> <laughs> that's and true. He, he shot. He's shooting his own films now. The score written by the guy who did Phantom Thread, Johnny Greenwood. Johnny Greenwood. Or oh, no, 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 no. Nicholas Patel who did If Bill Street Could Talk. We'll, we'll post our dream cast. But thank you for listening to this episode and to season three. We're going to take a short break and we're going to be back with season four when we feel like it. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we're not going to give you an exact date because
because we don't know yet, but we want to take advantage of our break to record a slew of more episodes so we're not frantically editing it the Monday before (laughs) we need to release it. (laughs) So yeah, this has been an absolute pleasure. I love doing these with you, Laura. I love all the books you have brought into my life and I've discovered so this great art. I'm so appreciative for that. Well, same to you. I've learned so much about film and television and actors and cinematographers. Cinematography. Cinematography. So yeah, just to wrap up, this has been great and I appreciate that people are still listening because I'm shocked. (laughs) Yeah. And hey, we now have around 35 subscribers, I think. So that's a start. Yeah. Building a following slowly but surely. Well, thank you. We shall see you in season four. We're coming in hot. Yeah. Peace out.